Amen. Well, good morning. I, uh, every now and then, have the moment of being reminded of just how good our God is. And I say that to say this, not that I ever forget that. However, every now and then, you just get a clear reminder of the goodness of God. And it's one of those moments where I wish upon wishes that you all could have sat with me this week in my office as uh, I prepared this message this morning, and then to know what I know in my brain from the amount of things that I've read, to then see many of these same things unfold in our service, whether it was through scripture reading or song selection, it's just wonderful to see how our music and our prayers and our scripture reading just tie back into the Word of God. I literally had a moment where as Daniel was praying, um, one of our elders praying for us, for our church, I literally opened my notes and thought, he has already read page two. That's amazing. And selfishly, for a brief moment, I felt like Bavink in page 13 of his book. Justin, am I right? It was just a good feeling. Now, many of you don't get that joke. It's because you're not with us on Thursday mornings. You should come just to hear the goodness and the riches that is dropped from this book that comes from the lips of Justin. It's worth it for that. Okay? Worth the price of admission for free. Anyway, all that to say, it has been a glorious day in worship, and I wish upon wishes that I could just have my computer here, open up my notes, all the things that have been highlighted and unpacked, and just said, man, look at the goodness of God as how God is, is unpacking himself before us today. So with that being said, let's jump back into our study this morning. We are in Malachi chapter 2, wrapping up uh, the second chapter of Malachi. And again, we have been studying Malachi where we have been, as, as God's people, been seeing how God is, has been calling out his people but through all of his corrections, through all of his rebukes, we have been seeing God's covenant grace at work in the lives of his own people. And we are going to see more of that today. In fact, I hope and pray that as we continue to read together today, I hope that we are still seeing that God himself is always faithful even when we are the ones who are faithless. Because the reality is this we will find ourselves as a faithless people before a very faithful God. And yet God, through his grace, always remains constant, always remains consistent, and is always faithful to his promises. So with that being said, this morning we're going to be looking into a very popular topic in our society today. So again, providential moment as we talk a little bit more this morning about justice and what justice is. Now, if I could define the word justice for us this morning, it would be this. Justice defined is the quality of being fair. It's the, the principle of moral rightness or conforming to moral rightness in action or in attitude. Now, again, this word justice, the, the definition of justice, the thought itself uh, of being fair or the quality of being fair is actually an excellent concept. And I believe it's something that all of us long to see when it comes uh, to people getting their just due or their just dessert, if you will, whether that just due is good or whether it is bad. I mean, think about this for a moment. 
How many of us in our favorite TV shows or how many of us in, in watching the news for whatever reason when we do watch the news, how many of us become outraged when we see criminals, whether in reality or criminals in our favorite TV shows, walk away with no punishment for what it is that they have done? How many of us get outraged even when good people, people that we know are doing good, people that we see who are doing good, all of a sudden these people get punished for their kindness. And so what ultimately ends up happening is we begin to look around and ask the question, where is the justice? In a, in a world or in a society that we are currently living in, we ourselves are probably quick to look for justice even in our local context within our friends and family when we feel that, we, that they have been wronged. You see, in our culture, it's in the midst of this outrage. It's in the midst of this frustration and this midst of this heartache that people begin to look around and they ask the following question, where is the God of justice? We ask the question, where is the God of justice when bad things happen to good people? We ask the question, where is the God of justice when bad people walk away with no repercussion for their actions whatsoever? I would imagine if we were all honest with ourselves, we've probably read a familiar gospel story multiple times and thought to ourselves, if only I could do what they were asking for. And the story I'm referring to is the story of James and John, when upon preparing to enter into a village, the village said, no, we don't want any part of Jesus. We want, we want that distraction to stay away. We want that, that, that thing that's happening with Jesus. We've heard about it. We want that story to move on beyond us. And then James and John report this back to Jesus Christ. And then what did they say? They didn't say, to God be the glory, we'll continue to move. No, that's too easy. They said, Lord, if it be your will, subtext, and may it be so, we will call down fire from heaven and destroy them. Subtext, and then they will know about the goodness and grace of our God. Right? How many of us have had that same thought? How many of us have looked around in, in our own society and, and around at some of our, our own situations and said, God, if you would allow it, if you would allow me to call down fire from heaven, we could take care of the problem that we are having in Washington, D.C. Lord, if you would allow us to call down fire from heaven, we would no longer have to send troops overseas. We could just do this ourselves. God, if you would only allow me to call fire down from heaven, this person that I'm dealing with would be turned to ash. All in the grace of God. Right? We've probably all had this same thought. So you see, the questioning of God is nothing new here. The questioning of God saying, where is the God of justice? This has actually been around for a very long time. In fact, for as long as there has been injustice in the world, for as long as there have been violence in the world, people have been asking the question, where is the God of justice? And as we're going to see in our text, this is the very next dispute that God speaks to uh, for his people uh, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me at the very end of Malachi chapter 2. We're going to read verse 7 together, and then we're going to jump into Malachi chapter 3. So if you were there in the Word, and you can, and you're able, I would invite you now to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. 
Now again, this is Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. We read, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. Now, as we read in our text this morning, the book of Malachi now tackles the same question of where is God? Again, this is a question that we have been hearing and and we ourselves have been asked in our day, which is, again, the same question that clearly we see has been around since the days of the Old Testament. So in our text this morning, the people were, were looking around. They were literally seeing morality unravel all around them. Does that sound vaguely familiar? They were watching more violence. They were watching more injustice occur all around them. And, and they weren't simply just asking the question of where is God in this moment, but rather in the midst of asking the question, they were literally blaming God for all that was taking place around them. So if you're, if you're reading carefully, you'll notice how the question goes from being, where is the God of justice, to now asking this question. If God was so holy, if God was so powerful, if he was such a holy and powerful being, then why? Why doesn't he act to set all things straight? Now again, I want to say to you, before you tune me out at this point and say to yourselves and in your heart and your minds, well, I have never thought or asked this question of the Lord, then let me ask you, have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever been hurt by someone and then they seem to be getting away with it? Then you have probably asked this question. Have you ever been sinned against or, or you knew for a fact that you had been sinned against? And I'm not talking about just being sinned against because someone disagreed with you and you're like, oh, that's sin. No, I'm talking about like literally, you know that you know that you know that this person sinned against you. You literally saw it. You heard it firsthand. You knew that it was real for a fact. And yet when you shared this with others because this brother or sister would not come to you, no one would listen to you. In fact, people heard your story only to believe the other side, and and many of them would never even come to you to ask you at all what would actually happen or what did happen. 
you have probably in that moment thought, where is God in this moment? Maybe you're here today and you've asked a question where you found yourself in a situation where all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you're being dragged. Maybe you're being dragged at work. Maybe you're being dragged by your own family through the mud. And and you all of a sudden come to a point where you're like, come on, Lord, why is this happening? Lord, why am I dealing with this? Lord, why is this still going on? You've probably asked yourself the question, God, where are you in this moment? You see, if any of these questions describe your thoughts, if they describe your motivations, if they describe your heart, then I want to share with you that this message from the Lord today is for you from the Word of God. Because the truth is this, all of us have struggled and wrestled with God. All of us have have struggled and wrestled with His presence. I imagine that all of us have struggled and wrestled with the thought of where is God in this moment. Many of us have probably even asked the same question that was asked of God in this text, which is, where is the God of justice? So as we read this morning, I want us to see that God has a response to our frustration. God has a response to our heartache. God has a response to the question that we are now asking. Look with me again, chapter 2, verse 17. Into chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Did you just hear how God opens this passage? He literally says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. I mean, can we just pause for a moment and take stock of what is being said to the people of God from God? I mean, upon initial reading, when I, when I first read this passage, man, I can think of a lot of things that I want God to say about me. I mean, when I stand before the Lord, I want to hear things like this. Well done, right? I want to hear things like, well done, finish it, good and faithful servant. That sounds great. I want to hear that from God. If I'm standing before the glory of God and I'm I'm in his kingdom, I I want to hear, welcome home. Or better yet, I want to hear God say, hey, I love you. I want to hear that kind of of stuff now. I'd love to hear God say to me with a big smile on his face, how about them dogs? All these things are wonderful. However, Upon seeing God in his first word being, you are exhausting? That doesn't even make the list of the top 100 things I want to hear from God. I mean, really, honestly, who wants to hear that from God today? How many of you are going to go home and say, man, if the Lord would say to me, you are exhausting, I would feel like I could high five myself and check that off the list. I have accomplished my goal in life. Yet the reality is this is the word that the people hear today. You see, the people of God were a faithless people simply going through the motions in careless worship, and now they were questioning the presence of God. So you could almost hear God in the midst of this first statement literally saying, come on, these kids, geez, these these people, these people of mine, you people, you are frustrating. But thankfully, pay attention to what he doesn't say. 
He doesn't say that we've worn him out. Remember what our our first verse of this book was? What did God say to his people? He says, I have loved you. He has loved us from the beginning. And he loves us now. God literally says, listen, we, we as his people may be exhausting, but thanks be to God that even in the midst of the, the, the exhaustion that we cause God, God never walks away from his people. Now notice coming back to the text, the people ask the question, how? I mean, could you imagine standing before God and God saying to you, you have wearied me, and the first thought you have is, how, Lord? Like, look at what we're doing for you. We're worshiping, we're giving. How are we exhausting you? How is that even possible? And God says to them, because you were asking the question, where is the God of justice? Now, I want you to notice chapter 3, verse 1, because what God then does is he's going to actually answer that question. He literally says to them in verse 1, I'm right here. In fact, if you were to go back and and study the Hebrew, I'm I'm not going to bore you with all the Hebrew words here, but if you were to literally go back and and study it in Hebrew, chapter 3, verse 1 literally translates to God is present and he is ready to act. In fact, we read the words in English where God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, this is important because in in the ancient days, kings would often send a messenger ahead of them in order to clear traffic to the side of the road so that the royal entourage would not be slowed by the presence of everyone on the road. So again, in, in looking at the Hebrew, notice the word messenger here. Literally translates to the word Malachi, which is the same name as our book. So God is declaring that the royal messenger is already on his way. In fact, through Malachi, he has already arrived, which means the king is not far behind. You see, once the messenger is on his way, the king, the God of justice, will soon arrive in order to dispense his judgment. Now, spoiler alert, and as a footnote, I recognize in this room we are full of a lot of smart people. Some of us too smart for our own good. So let's go ahead and establish something this morning. We all do see and understand that not only is God speaking of Malachi and the coming of God's judgment, but we do recognize this morning that this is actually a prophetic word about the coming of John the Baptist as the messenger, right? We see that? Do we see that? We also see that when you continue to read where it says the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, the Lord will come to his temple. We understand that what God is telling us is that Jesus Christ is coming, right? We see that in the text here, correct? So notice, coming back to our text, keeping it in in Old Old Testament context for just a moment. Notice how God tells the people, you want justice? Well, good news. Justice is coming. He's coming soon. But be careful what you ask for. You see, here's the reality for us today. As God's people, we all want justice. But we have to ask ourselves this morning, are we prepared to take on the full implications of what it means for God to bring his justice? I mean, just stop and take stock of that for a moment. And let's just continue to read this text as we get into verse 2. It says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Notice how God tells us in this passage that that true justice is not a safe category. Notice that God says here that true justice coming from God is not a comfortable category. You see, like the people of Malachi's days, when we cry out for justice, what we're saying is we are hoping to see a return to traditional values of morality within society. Yet the reality is this. When God comes to bring justice, it will be strong. When God comes to bring justice, it will be a strong, decisive action executed against all of the wicked. Now again, as believers in the room, this sounds great, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound great? You almost want to go up to someone today who is wicked and just say, God's coming for you and it's going to be bad. Like, you want to say that, right? Like, if God gave me the ability to call down fire from heaven, that's one thing. But God's coming for you. That's like a whole nother thing, right? It's just not going to be good. This sounds good to us. But I want us to think about this for a minute. Because you see, when God's justice comes, and when his justice is done, it doesn't simply mean a return to an old-fashioned happiness like the ending of a classic movie. Rather, when the justice of God comes, it means equal and comprehensive judgment for all with no partiality. This is why verse 2 says, but who can endure the day of his coming? The his here is actually referring to the mighty and righteous judge who is to come. Again, foreshadowing. The best way to kind of think about this justice, if you would, excuse me. The best way to think about this is to imagine yourself driving down the road. And we've all probably done this before. And all of a sudden, as you're driving down the road, you pass a cop. Now, if you're going the speed limit, you're fine. Even if the cop pulls out, you might be a little nervous, but you're okay, right? You might look around your car and go, wow, my car is pretty trashy. Can they write me a ticket for that? You kind of have a moment of what have you done, right? But either way, you know you're doing the speed limit. You're doing good. You're not worried. However... Let's imagine the same scenario, except this time you pass the cop on the same road, but you're speeding. So what does he do? He pulls out behind you. He turns on those lights. And what happens to you? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, with every person I've ever been with who has been pulled over, including myself, I have never heard anyone say these words. Thanks be to God for in his goodness and grace, this man or woman is doing their job. Nobody has said that. In my own heart of hearts, in my mind, I'm thinking, what have I done? Oh, I was speeding. Well, it wasn't that bad. How do I get out of this? Either way, we have a moment where we're filled with worry and with dread because all of us are thinking the same thing. We know what we did is wrong. So what's the magic word we can say to get out of the ticket? You see, this this is the same idea behind the coming judgment. You see, the day of the Lord will not be a day of of vindication where all of a sudden those who believe will then feel justified. 
In other words, let me unpack what I'm talking about. Now, in that moment, as believers in Christ, we will be justified, praise be to God, through Jesus Christ, again, foreshadowing of what is to come. However, as believers in Christ, we're not going to get a moment where all of a sudden God shows up and we are able to say these words to other people. I told you so. We're not getting that moment. Rather, what we have in the day of judgment will be a day of condemnation for the sins that Malachi and the people of God have already been condemned of by this particular point. In fact, in studying the book of Malachi, one scholar said it this way, guilty people don't look forward to the coming justice because they have nothing to expect on that day except condemnation. And may I add this word? On the day of the coming of the Lord, it will be too late to justify yourself. It will be too late to justify your actions because only the just and righteous God justifies us. We will be without excuse on that day. Coming back to the text, notice how the Lord is coming like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, again, this may not sound like much, but God says that there will be a trial by fire that day as well as a trial by water. Now, again, let's unpack what the Lord is talking about here. God is not coming like a forest fire. He's not coming like, a, like an incinerator that destroys everything in its path and turns everything to ash. No, what it says of God is that he is coming to remove the worthless junk from that which is valuable. He is coming to, to dislodge the crud, to dislodge the, the dirt in order to, to make the garment clean and new again and then to, to wash the crud down the drain with the rest of the garbage. So the fire and the water in this instance are doing the work of the Lord by removing the bad, removing the junk, removing the crud, removing the worthless, thus separating the junk from that which is of great value to the Lord. And then the Lord says these words. He says that he's going to do this so that the people can be restored. Look at verse 4. He says, and then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem. Pause there. Because again, this was the same Judah who were our sinners from last week. Remember? They were the same sinners from the last text who were, who were faithless to the Lord. And faithless to the Lord in their own marriage. But now the Lord says that since they have been refined by the refiner's fire and cleansed by the fuller's soap, that the offering of Judah and, the, and Jerusalem will now be pleasing again to the Lord. So I want us to see this morning that, that the Lord is coming. But the Lord is coming to bring judgment upon the world. At the same time, the Lord is coming to restore His people. And the reality is this restoration, this, this sanctification process that's happening in our lives currently, this is not a, a painless process, nor is it easy. But the reality is, is that sin will be removed on the day that he comes. And then and only then will our offerings be fully pleasing to the Lord. Because we will be made righteous and whole before him. Notice we continue in verse 5. God says, and then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
Now, again, I don't know if you're keeping a list, a, a count here or anything like that, but notice how the Lord lists seven to eight specific violations that have now been committed by the people of God against the Mosaic Covenant at this particular time. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and venture out to say, I would imagine that many of us here today probably have a list of sins that, that we have deemed important and a list of sins that may not be as important. I imagine that many of us in this room probably believe that there are, there are some sins that are bigger than others. In fact, we probably know other believers who talk that way, where they say that, hey, some sins are actually bigger than others. And sadly, here's what happens. When we begin to compartmentalize sin, when we begin to categorize sin, we can become so blind in our own need for justice that the sins of others become clearly bigger than the sins that we ourselves have committed. I mean, think about this for a moment. In our society today, we speak out against things like abortion and promiscuity and stealing, all things that are good to speak out against, but we have little to say when it comes to issues of greed or exploitation. In the business world today, we, we hold people and businesses accountable for how they treat the poor and how they treat the disabled, but rarely will we hold them accountable for their own lustful desires or their own criminal behavior. In fact, we are literally only two presidential cycles removed from saying these words. I remember a particular party had a particular candidate. Good man, honest man, all things said about him. Wore a suit, everybody was happy. We said this about him. Yes, this man is very religious. Yes, this man has high moral values, but this man is not a Christian. So I cannot and will not vote for him. And then here's what happened four years later. Same party, new candidate. New candidate comes along with a little moral value. And here's what the same party says about him. Well, yeah, he's not perfect. Yeah, he's not good. Yeah, there's very little moral value. But we're electing a president and not a pastor. I mean, talk about the double standard that we have created when it comes to our own sins. And so here's what happens with this list. We look at this list in the text and see the things that the Lord is against, and we say this, God, you are welcome. You are so welcome, Lord, because these are things that I don't deal with in my life. Lord, you are welcome that I am not a sorcerer. Even if I do live close to Orlando. But the reality is this. When we look at these words upon a closer examination, we will see that God has given us a list that encompasses all people. And on the day of judgment, all People will be measured according to this list and others, and we will be found wanting. Give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Look at the phrase where it says, against the sorcerers. Again, hear these words. God is not saying he's against the sorcerers. Thus, you should boycott all things Harry Potter. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, what he, he's, not, he's not saying that, hey, this, this sorcery thing that I'm talking about, this is not just limited to the people who, who read tarot cards and, and play with voodoo dolls. No, this actually happens when we ourselves try to use our faith as a way of serving ourselves rather than completely surrendering to God. 
In other words, this is what happens when we, we go to church simply hoping that by our presence, simply hoping by being there, God will all of a sudden make us happy. All of a sudden, our, our lives will become smoother. This is when we, we pray to God thinking that God is not the God of the universe, but rather God is our errand boy. And so we treat him as such. You see, if we, if we treat God as if he uh, that, excuse me, if we treat God as if his chief end were to glorify and serve us, then we are the ones who have fallen into the sin. And thus God is against us. He continues from there and he says, I'm against the adulterers. Go, you read more about this in the gospel, but here it is. God's words compared to Jesus in the gospels. And here's what we know. If you've ever looked, thought, or fantasized about another person who is not your spouse, you fall into this camp. He says that he's against those who swear falsely in the text. When we misuse the truth to serve our own purpose. When we edit or shape a story to, to put ourselves in the best possible light instead of looking to where we are the ones who have misstepped, then we find ourselves in this camp. Let me tell you something as believers. We also find ourselves in this camp when people come up to us and ask us questions like how we are doing. And then we make them believe that we are basically Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. When in reality, we are hurting and we are the ones who are struggling with sin. When we hide our hurts from people because we think they don't want to hear them, when people share their hurts with us and, and we think we don't want to hear them, we fall into this camp as those who swear falsely. He goes on to say, he's against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. You see, when we don't care for our family, when we don't care for our neighbors, when we don't care for strangers, we fall into this camp. When we say things like we are not willing to sacrifice in order to serve the good of those around us for the glory of God, we fall into this camp. When we neglect getting the gospel to our neighbors because they are not our mission field, but rather our mission field is somewhere overseas, we fall into this camp. When we can help when we should help, and yet we offer nothing. We fall into this camp. And again, you may say, well, again, thanks be to God. I am none of those things. Pastor, I really am Mary Poppins. Practically perfect in every way. I think if we were being honest with ourselves this morning, we would say that all of us can see ourselves in one of these categories. But if that's not you, let's take it a step further, okay? Because God doesn't finish there. You look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and what does it say? It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Notice the key word in both of these passages is the word all. We are all sinners. We are all wretched. We are all totally depraved. So as a believer in Christ today, you have to believe in total depravity because that's us. I love what Ian DeGuid says about this particular point. Scholar, pastor, professor, wonderful, wonderful writer. 
He says that total depravity is not merely an abstract idea in a theology textbook. It is a deep-seated reality that shapes and marks each of our experiences daily because we all have hearts that are profoundly twisted and ravaged by sin. I want to tell you something this morning that our very grumbling about the absence of God's justice condemns us. Think about that statement for a moment. When we find ourselves in a position where we look around and we ask the question, where is the God of justice? We are now accusing God of treating the unjust better than he's treating us. When we ask the question, where is the God of justice? We seek to to set ourselves up as the judge and we try to summon God to execute our thoughts and to execute our actions as if he was our magical genie. I mean, brothers and sisters in Christ, in grace, how arrogant and hypocritical we are with our own mountain of sin to even think that we can seek to advise the judge of all the earth as to what he should do about the problem of evil. How arrogant and hypocritical we are. In fact, I think instead of praying, God, where are you in this moment, which I have been guilty of, maybe our prayer should sound like this, Lord, forgive us, for we are not the judge. Forgive us, for we stand condemned as a people who have sought to sit in the seat reserved only for you. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so here in our text, another word comes from the Lord. And again, we see that God is not at fault. Rather, it is the people who are at fault. And again, we see another harsh dispute that God has against his people. But I want to encourage you. Again, I told you, there is encouragement that comes from Malachi. We often miss it. So here's the encouragement. The encouragement is this, that there is hope. Okay, so let's take this this text from the ground level and let's raise this bad boy about 20,000 feet. Let's get a bird's eye view of this one, okay? There is hope. Go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We read the words, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You read verse 1, and you can answer this question. Is the Lord coming, and is there hope for us to escape the wrath we deserve? Well, according to chapter 3, verse 1, the answer is yes. Read verse 3. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. We can answer the question according to verse 3. Will the faithful be set apart and kept free from God's eternal judgment? The answer is yes. Because he will come and refine us, and he will cleanse us of our sin. And here's the beauty. We know how that story ends, okay? We go from Malachi to silence to the Gospels, and guess what? The king comes. The king comes and offers grace, forgiveness, healing, restoration. We know this story. And then here's the beauty of that story. The king comes. He dies the death that we deserve. On a third day, he rises from the dead, spends about another 40 days amongst his people, and then he ascends. And then guess what he says? 
He's coming back. He's coming back. So you may ask the question, well, is there hope? Is there hope even for those who sit or who seek to sit in the judgment seat of God despite their own sin? Is there hope for those people who seek to sit in that seat of judgment, knowing of God's ability to consume them with fire? Well, the answer to that question is this. Yes. Spoiler alert for next week. Read verse 6 with me. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I mean, again, do you remember the opening verse from Malachi? What does God tell us? He has loved us. Okay, he's telling us he loved us first. And then here, God reminds us that there is hope because he is faithful. He says, listen, I'm the Lord and I don't change. And good news for you, you're not going to be consumed. So you see, in spite of the people's faithlessness, dare I say, in spite of our faithlessness, God has not nor will not ever change his faithfulness. You see, those whom he has chosen, he will save. In spite of who they are, in spite of what they've done, in spite of their sin. Again, we, as those who believe, can look at another hard passage and see the goodness of God. And today we can say to God, be the glory for what he has done. To God, be the glory for what he is doing. To God, be the glory for what he will do. And thanks be to God who has loved us first. Thanks be to God who has not consumed us with his fire of judgment. And thanks be to God for his covenant grace. Let's pray together.